Welcome to yet another episode of How Hacks Happen, where we talk about interesting things in the world of cybersecurity. Greetings, Carrie. Hello, Michelle. We have a very exciting topic this time around. And what might that be? Cryptocurrency. Well, I've heard of Bitcoin. That's the original cryptocurrency, but there are lots of others now. So cryptocurrency is an investment thing, right? Yes, it is. But actually, a lot of people are investing in cryptocurrency without really understanding how it works. And in this episode, we're going to explain all that. In particular, we're going to talk about blockchain, which is the way Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies keep their transactions safe and offer a trusted way to exchange and store money. Oh boy, a subject I know nothing about. <laughs> That's why I'm here to explain it all in plain English. Thank Buddha. Cryptocurrency is, in most ways, just like other currencies. Besides the US dollar, there's the Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar, the euro, the Russian ruble, Japanese yen, all different kinds of currencies in different countries. Okay. And it's called a currency because, loosely speaking, it can be used to buy things. And to understand how cryptocurrency can even be possible, let's talk a little bit about the foreign currency exchange. And to do that, we need to go all the way back to the 1800s. Engaging Wayback Machine. In the 1800s, many countries adopted the gold standard as part of their currency system. To get people to have faith in paper money and coins, they guaranteed that you could turn in the money anytime and exchange it for gold, which has value in pretty much every society. So the metal gold, gold bars. Yeah. And this was a good move at the time because many people were still suspicious about buying things with, you know, little metal disks and little pieces of paper. Little metal disks meaning coinage. Yes. Okay. And the pieces of paper, the paper money. And if you think about it, it's kind of a crazy idea. Like, I'm going to hand you this paper or this coin, and you're going to hand me some eggs or some fruit or a horse or something. And it all hinges on the person receiving the paper or coins, having faith that they can turn around and use the paper or coins to buy something else, like uh, chicken feed or wood to build a barn or even pay for labor. Okay. I never really thought about it that way. We all have to believe that the money is going to work. Believe! Believe! I believe in money. So everyone has to agree that these little pieces of paper mean something. You know, like, I know that if I go down to the grocery store right now, I could use these pieces of paper to buy food. Yeah, it's such a part of our lives, we don't even think about it anymore. Well, I could use plastic. Right, credit cards, which are one step removed from paper money. And then we have online purchases, which takes it even a step further. And your bank account, do you think the bank actually has a stack of pieces of paper or gold with your name on it back in their vault? You mean they don't? No. Uh, what if I want my money? Where's my money? <laughs> it's an entry in an electronic ledger. You and the bank agree that that's the amount of money in your account, and so that's the amount of money you have. Simple as that. I've really honestly never thought about that. Well, it's probably fine. If your bank is reputable, then you're good. This trust is what keeps the wheels of commerce turning. You make me want to go to my bank and withdraw all my cash. And what would you do with it after that? I'd stuff it in my mattress. A time-honored tradition. Paper cash in your hand is always a beautiful thing. But we now have tons of electronic-type 
cash, like the money in your bank account, the money you spend with your credit cards or electronic transfers with Venmo or PayPal. There's no paper bills, there's no gold. It's just an agreement that this money is moving around. Okay. Cryptocurrency is really only possible because of this shift to electronic money. Cryptocurrency is basically money that exists only electronically that you can use to buy things online. But is that really true? Can I pay my bills with Bitcoin? Some of them. Actually, Microsoft and AT&T accept Bitcoin. And in some countries, you can use it at Burger King and Subway. There are dozens of companies that accept Bitcoin now. So I could pay my phone bill in Bitcoin? Yes. And in that way, Bitcoin is a currency. Okay. But how is that? It's, it's totally electronic, right? No coins or paper money or gold. That is what I shall explain today. But before we get into that, let's talk about how cryptocurrency relates to the foreign exchange market. Like, how much cryptocurrency can I buy with U.S. dollars? Precisely. Or really, any other established currency from any country. Um, I actually went to Moscow with a friend in the mid-1990s, and our hotel bill was over a million rubles. Damn. <laughs> Damn. I, how many paper bills is that? That was a wide That's of ridiculous. Cash. That's okay. more bigger wad of cash I've, than I've ever had in my hand any other Crazy. time. But the exchange rate at the time was around 1,200 rubles per dollar. So the bill actually came out to $30 per night, which is, is pretty reasonable. How much was the million rubles worth? It was worth around 800 US dollars. <laughs> two rooms for two weeks. That's not so bad. And the best part was we stayed at the Sputnik Hotel. Sputnik? <laughs> yes, it was actually kind of cool showing up at the hotel with this like giant fistful of rubles to pay my bill. I never held a million of anything in my hands. I can't even, I really can't imagine that. I can't, I can't. <laughs> it, was, it, it was so striking to me that I, I remember it to this day and that was, you know, 30 years ago. So what's the exchange rate now between rubles and the U.S. dollar? It now is around 73 rubles per dollar. It actually would have been a great investment for me to have bought 1 million rubles with my U.S. dollars back then, my $800, and exchange them now. I'd be able to exchange them for about $13,000 in U.S. money. 800 in rubles then for 13000 now? That sounds like a really good return on your investment. Yes, if only I had had a crystal ball. But you didn't. I didn't. I could not see the future. And I don't think it would have occurred to me back then that I could make money off of exchange of foreign currency. I mean, it just as easily could have gone the other way. And my million rubles would be worth, you know, 50 bucks. This sounds risky. Kind of like the way the stock market works. Mm -hmm. Okay. But lots of people do it. The foreign exchange market, or Forex, as it's called, has been alive and well for decades. And you're right, trading in currencies is a lot like the stock market. The value of both currency and stock have to do with market forces and public perception and other fuzzy-wuzzy things. Oh, not to mention, like, governments collapsing, <laughs> that too. Jeez. The difference is that with a currency, you can always use it to buy things. You can't buy things with stock. All you can do with stock is sell it for money. Okay, I never quite thought about it that way. Well, that's the fundamental difference between currency and stock. Okay, I, I can't see myself going down to the grocery store and trying to buy vegetables with, like, stock in Google or Apple or something. I don't think that would go too well for you. But at the same time, I don't think they'd take rules either. No. 
But they take rubles at grocery stores in Moscow or St. Petersburg. True. Okay, I see the difference. Currency can be used to buy things, but stocks can't. Exactly. And in the same way, I could have, quote, invested in the ruble in 1995 by exchanging 800 U.S. dollars for a million rubles. Except in that case, I would have these paper rubles to physically exchange. Here, what we're talking about is all electronic. People invest in cryptocurrency by buying it for some amount of a more established currency like the U.S. dollar, with the idea that they can sell it later for a lot more of that same currency. So you pay 25 U.S. for one Bitcoin. And then a few years later, you sell that one Bitcoin for, let's say, a thousand U.S. dollars. That's exactly right. It's bonkers. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's what's going on, though. Well, everybody has heard about Bitcoin going up, up, and up. But I didn't really know what that meant, but I think I get the idea. It means that a Bitcoin now is worth more in U.S. dollars than it was then. Yes, that's exactly right. And when Bitcoin was first introduced, it was worth next to nothing. There's this story about how in 2010, a programmer traded 10,000 Bitcoins for two Papa John's pizzas. So 10,000 Bitcoins for something like $20. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. And as of the day we're doing this podcast, one Bitcoin is worth over 40000 and it's gone as high as 60000 earlier in the year. So today, those pizzas would be worth over $600 million. I'm sorry, that boggles my brain cells. It really does. But that's some expensive pizza. I, how is that possible? It is pretty crazy, but, you know, like stocks or the ruble, it's all about what people are willing to pay for it. And there are lots of variables and forces that an individual doesn't have control over. To be clear, this is not to be taken as advice to invest in Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency or anything for that matter. A lot of people invest in cryptocurrency because they think its value against the US dollar or some other currency will go up. Or they want to have some fun with a few dollars, but really, Cryptocurrency is just as volatile as the stock market, and it could crash any time. So, if someone listens to this podcast and then invests in cryptocurrency and it goes bad, they should not try to sue you. I hope not. Mm -hmm. I'm presenting this just so people can get a better understanding of what it's about, not to try to convince anybody to invest in it. And there are other podcasts and YouTube channels and books and all kinds of stuff about Bitcoin and why it goes up and down. And this is not one of them. This is just about the technology behind it. So I'm still not clear on how cryptocurrency really works. Like, why do people consider it legit? Yeah, like, what's to stop somebody from just starting a Kickstarter and being like, hey, buy my cryptocurrency, I'm totally legit, come buy it now. That's an interesting question. <laughs> and to answer that question, we have to get a little bit technical. Oh boy. I promise I'll be gentle. You always are. Please continue. All right. To explain how cryptocurrency works, we have to talk about a little thing called blockchain. Carrie, have you ever heard of blockchain? No, I have not. Clearly, you have not been to a cybersecurity conference in the past 10 years. Thank God. <laughs> blockchain is a new way of storing electronic data that makes cryptocurrency possible. What? A new way to store data? There are different ways to store data? Mm-hmm. It's kind of a combination 
of an established way of storing data, plus a clever use of cryptography. Cryptography. Why did I know that was going to be part of the conversation, darling? Because you are psychic, Carrie. I am. Or maybe I just you just talk about it so much. I know. It's all right. It's all right. I always learn something. It's fun. Okay, good. On to blockchain. A toast to blockchain. <laughs> So to talk about blockchain, we need to talk about hashing. That's one of those basics of cryptography, one that's used to store passwords and verify documents and all kinds of other stuff. I remember you telling me about this. Hashing is a way to mush up the data and come up with an unbreakable secret code. Yes, that's a pretty good description. Hashing uses an algorithm that makes your data into a mush of numbers and letters. This result is called a hash. No matter how many times you do the hashing on that same piece of data, you end up with the same mush result. And there's no way to go backwards, no way to take the hash and figure out what the original data was. How can that be possible? You do a cryptography thing and you can't reverse it? That's correct. Mathematicians and hackers have worked on this for years and these established hashing algorithms are impossible to reverse engineer. That does not make sense. Okay. I'm going to try to use a real-world analogy, which is a little bit tough because there is actually no physical analogy for hashing and how it works and why it keeps stuff safe. But I tried to come up with an example okay. that maybe will get us part of the way there. We'll see. Okay, so suppose you have a ceramic tile, a single ceramic tile, something with a spotty pattern on it. Like a tile on my bathroom floor. Yeah, something like that. So here we're just talking about the one tile, and you put the tile on the ground, and you whack it with a hammer. And it cracks apart into, say, a clean break of 25 pieces of roughly equal size. There's no little tiny shards or anything. There's just these chunks pieces, okay? okay? And they're all going to be jagged in different shapes and sizes and so on. So you take them and mentally organize them into rows, or maybe the way it smashes, they're in rows. And you want to reduce these 25 pieces to 12 pieces. And you have rules for doing that, very specific rules. So in each row, you pick the third piece from the left and you throw it in the trash. And then if the sixth piece in any row has spots on it, you move it into the third slot. So you're moving these pieces around and throwing some of them away according to specific rules. Well, so you're with me so far? Like, if I gave you a tile, a hammer, and some instructions, you could do this? Yes. Okay, good. All right, and so you keep mixing things around, throwing them away until you're down to 12 pieces. Now, if someone else comes along and looks at this, they couldn't say what the tile originally looked like. Like, if there's a piece that has spots on it in the third slot, you know, who knows where it came from? Is this making sense? Yes, it actually is. Okay, good. But why would anyone want to do this if you can't reverse it? Well, we'll get to that. The whole point is comparison. Suppose we started out with two identical ceramic tiles, and you had one, and I had one. Now, they're identical in every way, down to the manufacturing defects that make them break a certain way. We want to make sure we have exactly the same tiles. So you and I smash our tiles at the same time, with the same kind of hammer, with the same amount of force, in the same spot. But if I smash the tile, I can't reuse it. 
Uh, yeah, that's true for an actual tile, but this is an analogy for electronic data, so you can always make an exact copy before you okay, smash something. got it. So you and I smash our tiles, then we both follow the same rules of throwing pieces out, moving pieces around, and then we look. And if what we end up with is exactly the same, then we started with exactly the same tile. And so it's a way of confirming that they're exactly the same. Okay. But did you send me a little hammer too? I did. I'm so happy. I actually sent you a little tiny robot that does the smashing for you and it does it in the same spot. And I have the same robot. Oh, goody. I didn't want to ruin the analogy. That was was a good call. Plus, I got to imagine two tiny identical robots. (laughs) Win-win. Okay, so back to the smash. The smashing. Okay, so just to make the point here, this isn't about reconstructing the original. It's about confirming that the hash, or the smash in this case, is exactly the same. Okay, not very practical in real life, but useful for computer data. Yeah, hashing has absolutely no use for physical objects, but is very useful for electronic data. Because, say, I send you a document, and we want to make sure that the one I sent you is exactly the one you got. I can do a hash on my end, you do the hash on your end, and then you compare the hash, and you can tell they're exactly the same down to each comma, period, everything. Why can't we just compare the original documents? Because sometimes documents are very huge. Oh, so the hashing... The hash is small. Oh. That makes more sense now. Ah. Okay. Yes. Kind of like everyone can get an identical hammer and robot and smash the toil. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's just this one hashing algorithm that everybody uses. No, there's a few. One of the most popular ones is called SHA. SHA. Which is spelled S-H-A. SHA sounds so relaxing. I'm going to SHA this document. And within the family of SHA algorithms, one that's used a lot now is called SHA-256. Another one is MD5. And if you do a search on the words hash generator, you'll find a whole bunch of free tools for making hashes with these algorithms and other ones, too. Okay, everyone knows the algorithm. What else? The next is that when you hash your data, if you hash the same data again with the same algorithm, you get exactly the same result. We kind of went over that already. Mm -hmm. Another is that no one can look at the hash and figure out what the original data was. Okay, I got that from the smashed up tiles thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And last but not least, if you change just one little thing about the original data, the hash will change radically. Like if the tile was manufactured slightly differently, when you smash the tile, the pattern of pieces would be completely different. If you have a document and you change one comma or one period in it, the hash bears no resemblance to the original one. And there's no way to predict how the hash will change. It's designed to produce a string of characters that seems totally random. Okay, I remember you talking about how you submitted a movie to a film competition and they used hashing for something to make sure you finished on time? Yeah, the files can be very large and you were gonna have to submit it by uploading it. And the competition was international and all the films had to be submitted electronically And there was a very strict deadline for how late you could work on the film. You had to finish at a certain time. But sometimes it can take a while to upload a whole film. 
and they didn't want people to be disqualified because they had poor internet connections, poor bandwidth. So what they had us do was hash the finished film before 7 p.m., which was the deadline, and then send them the hash. Hashing the film took maybe five minutes, and then to email them the hash takes no time at all. It was a string of, um, I forget how many characters, but something along the lines of 30 characters long. Copy-paste into the email right, and sent okay. it off. Then we had 12 hours to upload the actual film. Mm -hmm. And after they got the film, they hashed it on their end. And if the two hashes matched, the one we sent and the one they just got, they knew the film hadn't changed since 7 p.m. after they accepted it. Okay. So they had you hash it and then upload it. So if you hashed it at 7, then you couldn't cheat and tweak it for an extra 12 hours where no one else got that extra 12 hours and then submit a tweaked film because then the hashes wouldn't match and they know you fucked with it. That is exactly right. Thank you very much. Thank Congratulations, you very much. Carrie. You now understand the use and purpose and excellence of hashing. So suppose my movie isn't ready, but I need to send the hash of the incomplete film by seven. So I send that. And then I spend the next like five hours or so tweaking my film. And now I try to hash it. I know it won't match the original hash, but can I like fake it? Like put an extra dot at the end or put an extra couple pixels on the last screen or extend the black screen at the end by a couple seconds and try to fake the hash that way? Well, you get big points for thinking like a hacker. Okay. <laughs> the concept you came up with is a good one and might actually work. It would? Yeah, but there's a couple of drawbacks here. Besides the fact that I'd be cheating. Well, hackers don't care if they're cheating. Well, this is true. Well, it is virtually impossible to keep adding random stuff to something and coming up with the same hash as something else. It does happen, but it's rare, and you're going to be doing this for like 100 years. You, there's no way you're going to get the film in on time if okay. you decide to do this. So you didn't tell me that before, that there's no way to ever get two of the same hashes ever, for the most part. And there's actually some older hashing algorithms that occasionally produce the same hash twice. MD5 is one of them. That's called a collision, by the way, when you have two completely different inputs that produce the same output. But it's rare, it's hard to find, and it's one of the reasons that MD5 is not a recommended hashing algorithm for security purposes. It's fine for comparison, like for film submissions and stuff, but people don't use it for security anymore. Okay, so I'd be sitting there adding pixels to that last frame for... I don't know, a thousand years. It's really not worth it. No. But you bring up an interesting approach that, believe it or not, is perilously close to describing part of the blockchain process. I'm a hacker! Who'd have thunk it? Uh-huh! So let's talk about blockchain! A toast to blockchain! Yay! Clink. To understand blockchain, let's look at an example of the technology, but instead of movies, we're going to use documents. So suppose I give you a document and say, I want you to hash this document with the algorithm SHA-256. So pretty simple, you just look up the algorithm, and there's all these online hashing tools where you throw your document, drag and drop, and then it spits out a hash for you a minute later, and there you go. That's pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. But I bet you could do it, you budding hacker, you. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, actually now I probably could. <laughs> yeah. All right, now... Hmm, suppose I said, the next thing is I want you to add some random characters to the end of the document and hash it again. You'll get a completely different hash, right? So far, so good. Then I say, 
I want you to try adding different combinations of random characters to the document and hashing it again until the hash that pops out starts with the letters A, B, C. I don't specify the entire hash string of characters, just the first few characters. And if you can do that, I'll give you a hundred bucks. Uh, so you want me to sit there typing and hashing and typing and hashing until the hash starts with those letters. Why would I do that? It all has to do with blockchain. We call this kind of thing a puzzle. The task is to find the right random string of characters that, when added to the document, produce the hash that I asked for. Not the complete hash, just the first few characters. And when you solve the puzzle, you get a reward. Okay, I'll take your word for it, but wouldn't that take like a hundred years? Yeah, it could take a hundred years, but suppose you wrote a little program to do it for you, just cranking along, randomly trying stuff, and the program runs really fast and can try thousands of combinations per second. And then after, say, five minutes, the answer pops out. You show it to me and say, see, I added these characters, and now the hash starts with ABC, and you collect your hundred bucks. Sounds like a lot of work for a hundred bucks. Aha, uh -huh, but suppose lots of other people hired you to do the same thing with different documents and different puzzles. You could just run your program over and over again. Every five minutes, a hundred bucks. Now that's more like it. Yeah. This is what happens when someone buys or sells cryptocurrency. Remember when I said earlier it's all about trust? Like when I make a deposit to my bank, I trust that they'll keep track of it and give me back my money when I ask for it. Exactly. This weird hashing assignment is how cryptocurrency gets its trust. I am not understanding. Hopefully you will. Okay. Do some more. Whenever you buy some cryptocurrency, this is what happens, all right? Let's say you buy $300 worth of Bitcoin. What happens is your transaction is broadcast to the Bitcoin network. Now, ordinarily, you do this through an exchange of some kind, some kind of software program or an app on your phone. And you're like, I want to buy $300 worth of Bitcoin. So the, the app or the software broadcasts this request out to the Bitcoin network. And the Bitcoin network is just a bunch of people who have chosen to listen in to this traffic. They've all got the Bitcoin software, which is publicly available, and they know how to use it. So anyone can listen. Yep. Anyone can listen to what transactions are coming in. You have to have the software and know what you're listening for, but basically, yes. So everyone in the world can know that I just bought this Bitcoin. Sort of. Your name isn't tied to it, like not Carrie. If you bought the Bitcoin through an exchange, they will know your name because you have to like sign up for an account and all this kind of stuff. But they don't broadcast your name with the transaction. Then how is the transaction associated with me? There is a key assigned to you. This is basically a big long string of letters and numbers. If you buy through an exchange service, as many people do, they have the key associated with your name and they store that. So they don't send out your name to the Bitcoin network, they just send the key. They're like, here's a transaction and the key that goes with it. Okay, so my transaction is out on the... the Bitcoin network. All right, then what happens? Along with your transaction is a puzzle for all the listeners on the network. Take this transaction, add random characters to it, and hash it. Try different sets of random characters until the hash it produces starts with 17 zeros or something. Some kind of specification. Let's just say, for example, that the hash has to start with 17 zeros. And then? People on the Bitcoin network, they get busy solving it. Each of them have some kind of program and the computers crunch away at it. And if you're the first to solve the puzzle, you broadcast your solution to everyone. You say, here are the characters I added. Try it and see. So anyone can test the solution. They just add the random characters and hash the transaction. 
And a bunch of people tested and confirmed that yes, that is a valid solution. And they get a hundred bucks? Not quite. Whoever solves the puzzle first gets some free Bitcoin. No cash, just Bitcoin? <laughs> yep. They can hang on to it, exchange it for some other currency. They can do whatever they want. This is starting to sound weird. I'm sorry. This is weird. It is so, weird. So people are sitting in their basements deciphering my transaction info to make a hash that matches some specification generated by the people I bought the Bitcoin from just to earn some more Bitcoin? Yes, they're doing it for the Bitcoin. Okay, so it's starting to sound a little more attractive because then theoretically... They could be earning a hundred bucks every five minutes if they're cracking all these codes with all these computers. More like a thousand bucks a minute with the price of Bitcoin the way it is right now. Wow. So this, by the way, is what people mean by mining for Bitcoin. Aha. I heard something about Bitcoin mining being a thing. Like this is how some people make their money. Mm-hmm. In reality, it takes a lot of computing power to solve these puzzles. You can't just bring something up in your living room or your basement. And the people making money have these racks of powerful computers for puzzle solving. And now that Bitcoin is worth so much against the U.S. dollar, it's become a lot more attractive as a business. How long does it usually take, you know, for the puzzle to get solved? A few minutes. The confirmation part takes a little longer. It can be, say, up to an hour, maybe more. So the whole thing can take just a few minutes. Mm -hmm. You throw a powerful network of computers at the puzzle... You can come up with a solution quickly and send it out, and then other people can test it very quickly. So you said the miner gets paid some Bitcoin. Where does the Bitcoin come from? Does it come out of my money? Nope. The system makes new Bitcoin, and they get paid in that. So they just create Bitcoin out of thin air? You can't do that with currency. Abracadabra. It's inflation. <laughs> no, it's more like Bitcoins that have been waiting to be born are suddenly birthed like a newborn kitten. Oh, I need a kitten. I need a kitten. No, 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 no. Papi, papa. I can't just go in the basement and print money. That is correct. And that's like going in the basement and printing money. Well, technically speaking, there is only a finite number of Bitcoins. and. But you just said they created new Bitcoin like a new kitten. Well, they're, um, they're Bitcoin embryos. <laughs> and until they're mine. Bitcoin brios. Bitcoin <laughs> That's a new, could be a new buzzword. Bitcoin brios. They aren't in circulation yet. It's kind of like money that's sitting in the U.S. Mint that hasn't gone out yet. And actually, miners being paid in Bitcoin is the only way new Bitcoins get introduced into the system. Every time somebody buys or exchanges some Bitcoin, it means some new Bitcoin is going to get, not minted, dis distributed. So every Bitcoin has a history. Yes. And this will continue until there are 21 million Bitcoin in circulation and then it will stop. Okay, that answers my question. Yeah, no okay. more will be introduced after that. So technically speaking, those 21 million Bitcoin kind of already exist. They're just, they have not come forth. Gotcha. How many are there now? There are over 18 million in circulation now. So the end is near. Not really. But that's 18 million Bitcoin already mined in just a few years. When did Bitcoin start? 2009. All right, so a little over 10 years ago. I'm not that great with math, but even I can see that's going to max out any day now. But the system is set up so that the Bitcoin reward for puzzle solving is cut in half every once in a while. This will slow down the introduction of new Bitcoin enough so that it will cap out a long, long time from now. How long, long? Most of the estimates I've seen are 120 years. So Bitcoin has a half-life. Basically. Okay. 
So it'll max out long after you and I are gone. Yep. And there's been some speculation about how this will play out, but I'm not too worried about it. Do you own any Bitcoin? A little tiny bit. After finding out what it was about, I just had to get in and play, you know. But I intend to cash it out for U.S. dollars one day and spend it on myself. Presumably before 120 years from now. I certainly hope so. Let's get back to blockchain. Blockchain! That type of transaction I told you about, where the Bitcoin miner solves a puzzle then sends it around to all his Bitcoin buddies. That whole chunk of data, the transaction and your key and the puzzle solution and the hash is called a block. Okay, one transaction and all its stuff is a block. So what is the chain? As part of the Bitcoin scheme, the blocks are put in a connected list called a chain. Each block in the chain is like an entry in a ledger. You can read down the list of blocks and see all the transactions that have happened. Okay. There is one block that's the very first block on the chain. Then the second block is set up to include all the usual information in a block, but also includes the hash from the previous block. And then the third block contains all its own information, plus the hash from the second block. And so on up the chain. And this is how they're all chained together. All right, I'm trying to picture this. A chain of transactions and the hash from each one is stored in the next block. You got it. Okay. And where is this blockchain thingy stored? The same blockchain is stored in multiple places all over the internet. I should say copies of it. Identical electronic copies. That way, anybody can look at and compare all the different versions of the chain at any time to make sure they haven't been altered. And that's part of the trust factor. And what is the purpose of all this? It makes the chain tamper-proof. If you try and change a transaction, like say you try to add to it or subtract from the amount or change who it's from, it's going to change the hash, right? So if anyone checks up on this altered transaction by hashing the new transaction, the new hash won't solve the puzzle. It won't have 17 zeros at the front or whatever the puzzle was. And also, the new hash won't match the one stored in the next block up the chain, and so on. But couldn't someone just change a whole chain of transactions by solving the puzzles again? Like altering the transaction and solving each one again? Oh, you hacker, you! I'm working on it, man! (laughs) (laughs) They could do that, but why? It would take a huge amount of time and computing power when you could just spend that time mining more Bitcoin. Just do a single transaction and make some Bitcoin. Why alter all these transactions? Plus, anyone checking up on the chains would notice this one chain doesn't match all the other ones stored all over the Bitcoin network, and they would deem that chain invalid. So that chain would be invalid, so all of the transactions in that chain would then be invalid? Mm-hmm. Then what happens to the people who data mined those chains and got paid earlier? Well, the chain is stored in multiple places. You have a copy of the same chain stored, say, in 10 places. So if somebody messes with one chain, it doesn't match the other nine, so they toss it out. But the correct chain does have all those transactions. Thank you. you. All right, so it basically keeps people from messing with it because it's it's not not worth it. it. Yes. Got it. 
And in turn, we trust that all the matching copies of the blockchain are valid and our transactions are kept safe. This is the trust thing. Okay, this is also weird. (laughs) Sorry, this is just weird. (laughs) It was a new idea in 2009 and millions of words have been written about it and it was groundbreaking. And to this day, blockchain remains very hard to hack. And blockchain isn't just used for cryptocurrency, it's used for storing other kinds of data, and it's virtually unhackable. So people trust this blockchain thing with their money. Yes, and really it's not that different from trusting a bank. You know how at every bank there's a sign at every teller window that says FDIC in big letters. Right, that's an insurance thing. Yep. Well, prior to 1933, if your bank got robbed, you were SOL. Your money was gone. Sorry. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC, was formed by President Franklin Roosevelt in 1933 to insure banks. So if they got robbed, the clients wouldn't lose their money. Well, that actually makes banks sound safer than cryptocurrency. Not so fast. Remember the savings and loans in Um, the 1980s? Oh boy, do I remember. Yeah, they're kind of fake banks. They weren't insured. And lots of people lost their life savings when the SNLs went bankrupt. Lots of shady stuff was going on there. Still, banks are sounding safer. Real banks, yes. But then you don't have the anonymity that you get with cryptocurrency. I'll stick with the bank. You do you. But trading in (laughs) cryptocurrency does sound kind of fun. It is fun watching it go up and down. And now I feel like I actually understand it. Well, good. I simplified the technical details. Thank God. (laughs) I'm actually a little worried I'm going to get hate mail for my explanation. But I just want to get across the fact that this way of storing transactions was the big breakthrough that made Bitcoin possible. Actually, many cryptocurrencies. And it was actually a genius invention. And most types of cryptocurrency that came after do use blockchain. Did the person that originated the Bitcoin also think of all these blockchain algorithms to make it safe, or did that come after the fact? Nope, same guy. Wow. Mm -hmm. In October 2008, someone who called himself Satoshi Nakamoto published a technical paper called Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. You can find a link to this paper in our show notes. The paper described blockchain technology and how it could be used to accurately and securely store transactions, and that became the foundation of Bitcoin. Hang on. What do you mean, someone who called himself? Whatever his name was. Satoshi Nakamoto. It's a pseudonym. Nobody knows who he or she really is. There's various theories that it's one person or a group of 11 people, but no one has ever stepped forward, or at least no one that could be proven. It's one of the great mysteries of the crypto world. Who is Satoshi Nakamoto? Hold on. Bitcoin was invented by some anonymous person, and we're supposed to trust this? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> That mystery is a whole rabbit hole that we could spend hours going down. Who is Satoshi Nakamoto? But for now, please just accept that this paper about Bitcoin was written and that it was the start of cryptocurrency. Okay, but we have to talk about this sometime. I mean, millions of people are using something invented by who knows who. I'll address that in a moment, but please just accept it for now. Fine. Now back to the paper. 
Part of the paper talks about how we shouldn't have to rely on financial institutions as third parties for all our transactions. So we shouldn't need banks or credit cards. Mm -hmm. Also, that we should be able to hold our money anonymously without the government checking up on us. But wait, if it's anonymous, how is it your money? Because you have the key I mentioned earlier. Just a long string of numbers, letters, whatever. The key is associated with all your transactions. And it shows that you received or spent Bitcoin. To see how much Bitcoin you have, you just have to present the key. And after reviewing all your transactions, it will show that you now own X number of Bitcoins. So the key is the key. Yes, if you have the key, it's your money. And there's no way for anyone to trace the key. Wow, completely anonymous. That's the idea. Sounds a little cuckoo to me. Some random person out there who wrote a paper under a pseudonym had an ingenious way to encrypt things and make it safe and blah, blah, blah. But people are dumping massive amounts of money into this. Mm-hmm. People like to play. What can I say? Shazam. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was a pretty revolutionary idea. Store all your money anonymously on the cloud. In this way, cryptocurrency is often likened to cash. You can use cash anonymously to buy things in person at the store. Well, if they don't have security cameras. Well, there aren't any security cameras for web transactions. If you have your key, you have transactions associated with you, and those transactions say you have the currency. It's yours. Okay. All right. So back to the origins of Bitcoin. So Satoshi Nakamoto or somebody, registered the domain bitcoin.org a few months before the paper was published in October 2008. Then he, Nakamoto, I'm just going to call him he for simplicity here. Then Nakamoto released the Bitcoin software through the website. This was a software that gave people the ability to create blockchains and mine Bitcoin and to trade it. And he released this software in January 2009. To great fanfare. Ta-da! Actually, no. Uh, You know, crypto people like mathematicians, they found the paper interesting and the software interesting, but the financial world just kind of like yawned. So no one took it seriously. They didn't even notice a lot of them. And some programmers thought it was cool enough to play around with it. Nakamoto, he sent a few Bitcoin to a friend of his and that kicked things off. And then Bitcoin knocked around for a while, mostly between programmers You had to download the software and figure out how to use it. And in order to get Bitcoin, you had to mine it or buy it from someone. And at the time, one Bitcoin had a value of less than 10 cents. Did you know anything about it? I remember hearing about it. I go to these cybersecurity events and people were talking about it. And as time went on, people became about as divided as people are about politics or other hot button topics. Like there were people who thought that this was the greatest thing ever. And there were people who thought it was a fad and was going to fade away and be worth nothing. Don't you wish you had a crystal ball? Well, yes and no. Back then, buying Bitcoin was a pain. Remember the key I was just talking about? The key that makes it possible to retrieve your money. Yes. Sadly, there are many stories of people who got some Bitcoin back when it was worth next to nothing. Just for kicks, probably, because it was cool and new and... Blockchain sounded interesting. They bought $25 worth of Bitcoin back when um, one Bitcoin was worth less than a dollar. And maybe they moved or cleaned up their office or they forgot about it or they threw away the sticky note that they wrote their key on. 
and now that $25 worth of Bitcoin is worth... Over a million U.S. dollars. That's nuts. I'm sorry. That's crazy. Right. If you've lost the key, it's gone forever. No one can retrieve it without the key. That is rough, man. Mm-hmm. And that's the downside of cryptocurrency when you compare it with money stored in a financial institution like, like a bank. If your money is in the bank, you can always go down there with your driver's license to prove your identity and get your money. And if you lose your driver's license, there are ways to get a new one. And if you lose your password to your PayPal or Venmo account, there are ways to reset your password. Your driver's license or your password or whatever you use to prove your identity is the key in this sense. And you can always get back the key if you lose it. But if you lose the key for your Bitcoin, there's no way to get it back. Nope. So these people wrote their keys on a sticky note. (laughs) Some of them did. Oh my God. They did all kinds of things. Just a couple of stories. A guy in Wales owned 7,500 Bitcoins and he stored all the keys on a hard drive. But then he accidentally threw the hard drive away. How do you throw a hard drive away? I What? I've done that in the past. I go through so many computers and uh, you send them to be destroyed. I've given away so many laptops to different relatives and they wiped it clean. That would be the equivalent of it. But in this case, the hard drive is in the trash. Mm. And with the current value of Bitcoin... At around 40, 50,000 US dollars, that 7,500 Bitcoin is now worth about 300 million dollars. Oh, shit. Yes. That's ridiculous. I know, it's sitting in a landfill underneath piles of discarded orange peels and old sofas and. And headless Barbie dolls and coffee grinds and broken coffee tables. So you get the picture. Uh. (laughs) He's trying to get permission to search the landfill. You think? I suppose if I had accidentally dumped $300 million in the trash, I'd be doing the same thing. Yeah. Yep. Once the key is gone, the cryptocurrency is gone. It's like burning a stack of cash. You could never get it back. Man, that is rough. Mm, it is. There's a lot of horror stories like this, but if you're smart, you use this little gizmo called a crypto wallet. But wait, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> Just picture this ugly Velcro thing with a big key on it. Yes. Well, it's more like a thumb drive, but it's kind of fat, and it's designed to store your key and also to point to the places in the blockchain where your transactions are stored. But even the crypto wallet has a password, which you should keep in a safe place and not on a sticky note. And obviously, these people who lost their keys didn't use a crypto wallet. Well, some did. If you lose the password to the crypto wallet, it's just as bad as losing the key. Um, There's a famous story about... Mark Frauenfelder, a research director at the Institute for the Futures Blockchain Futures Lab. Wait, there's a Blockchain Futures Lab? Oh, there's a world of blockchain out there, Carrie. Who knew? Anyway, Frauenfelder wrote this great article in Wired Magazine about his own adventures with cryptocurrency. He had bought some Bitcoin and he transferred his key to his crypto wallet. And he wrote the password to the crypto wallet on a sticky note. Then his cleaning service threw away the sticky note. Oh, my note. God. He managed to get his password back, but he had to hire a hacker, and it was a very big drama. The article will tell you all about it if you want to know. And this is a research director for blockchain. Yes, just goes to show. It can happen to the best of Damn. us. Damn. This is not sounding very appealing at all. I will stick with money in the bank for now. <sighs> Good call. I mean, I just know that if I had bought $25 worth of Bitcoin back in the day, I would have been one of those sad stories 
My key would be stored on some laptop I owned in 2009, which would have died some awful death, as most of my laptops do. Wait a minute. How do you manage to kill all your laptops? Well, I travel a lot, and the laptops get rough treatment. First, the keys fall off, then the screen hinges break, then the power button disintegrates, and then it's it's all downhill from there. Eventually, the blue screen of death comes up, and I give it up. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I've seen your laptop. How many keys are missing? Three. Mm. Two more are loose. Just a matter of time. So, you and your dead laptop with your Bitcoin keys on it. Yes, that's what I envisioned would have happened. And it wouldn't have been worth it to try to save the hard disk when there was only $25 at stake. But now... Yes, now, seeing the value of Bitcoin right now, I'd be crying every day and endlessly going through all my backups to see if my key miraculously got saved somewhere, searching through all my notebooks and boxes of paper. I'd never leave my attic. You'd be like one of those crazy treasure hunters spending all their time digging holes. Yeah, more like a demented old lady looking through photo albums, <laughs> crying over what might have been instead of living her life now. So we never would have met and we wouldn't be doing this podcast right now if you had bought some Bitcoin. That's worse than never buying Bitcoin at all. That would be much worse. That crystal ball would have had to tell me to buy Bitcoin and make sure I never lost the key. That would be one heck of a crystal ball, buddy. (laughs) So that's how Bitcoin and blockchain work. Hopefully you have a better understanding of it now and can make your own decisions about cryptocurrency. Personally, I've invested a little bit in various cryptocurrencies, but as with any investment, I only invest what I'm willing to lose. Cryptocurrency is a volatile market and who knows what the next few years will bring. Please go forth and blockchain intelligently. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support us at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash howhackshappen. That's all one word, howhackshappen. We make this podcast available for free, but it's not free to produce. Even pledging a dollar a month will help make future podcasts possible so we can keep bringing you information like this. Thanks to my co-host, Carrie Pacuco. Hello. Our researcher, Charity Cosme, and our intrepid audio editor, Dan Isaacs of Impish 8, and all the world of blockchain that made this podcast possible.